This morning, uh, we are uh, putting a new lens on the second half of the book of Galatians. As we begin the second half, it's called Sons and Daughters. And so we'll be looking at what it means to be a child of God. All right, so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. That is at the, you know, sort of in the middle of Galatians chapter 4. And so our scripture reading is going to be on the screen to your left and your right. We'll be in chapter 4 of Galatians, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. All right. Uh, that's the, God's word this morning. And there's a, as we begin, there's a great story I want to tell. A great story about Alexander the Great. He was the great uh, Greek king and conqueror who, by the age of 30, had the largest empire in the known world at the time and who never lost a battle. He was undefeated. And one of the reasons he never lost a battle was because of his soldiers' intense loyalty to him. They would go anywhere with him. They would do anything for him. They would lay down their lives for him in a heartbeat and primarily because of stories like this. As the story in the legend goes, one of his generals came to him one time and said, Sir, you know, Alexander, uh, my son is getting married and I need help paying for the wedding. And Alexander said, well, okay, well, how much do you need? And the man named an absolutely astonishing sum of money. And it blew the minds of those around him who heard him ask Alexander the Great for that much money for his son's wedding. And without skipping a beat, Alexander the Great looked back at him and said, it's yours. You can have all that you've asked for. Go to my treasury and get it now. And, of course, the other generals that were around couldn't believe it. They were uh, basically insulted. They were stunned at what they had just seen and heard. And they said, sir, why did you do that? Weren't you insulted by how much he asked you for? And Alexander said, insulted? No, that man honored me. First, he honored me by coming to me with his need. And second, he honored me because he gave me a chance to show how generous I am. Man, great story. Then when you hear that, you, you begin to understand why people were so loyal to him and why they would give up anything for him because of his care and generosity. They would give up their own agendas and lives. And now the application of that. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 4 in Galatians, where we saw the incredible thing that Paul shows us, that in the gospel, we are no longer slaves to anything, but we have become permanently upgraded, 
to be adopted by God. We have been cosmically upgraded to a first-class spiritual status, that of beloved son and daughter who has access to the Father's treasury of love and delight and affection. Now, that's what we looked at. And and this week, as we go on, we're going to see what it leads us to, which is this. Our lives must change. Our lives must change. And like that general who received access to the greatest treasury in the world, we have been given access to heaven's treasury, the greatest treasure of heaven itself. And now, like that general, at some point, we're just going to be given some marching orders as to where to go and how to live our lives. Why? Oh, because like those men, we too are in the midst of a great conflict, and the stakes are life and death in the lives of those around us. And if you don't believe that, let me just suggest to you, you don't really get Galatians 4 yet. All right? So let's go beneath the surface of this sort of strange and stunning passage to take a look at what it shows us about becoming a child of God. Three headings, three sections this morning we're going to take a look at. First, we're going to look at all kinds of (laughs) non-gods. Second, three kinds of churches. And finally, one way to break through. Let's begin here. Number one, all kinds of non-gods, the title of the message. And, And you ask, well, what in the world does that mean? All right, well, it's tricky to explain this phrase. It's going to take me a minute. But what you're about to see Paul do here will give you the key to understanding, wait for it, the whole Bible. The whole Bible. You say, Morgan, you know, you're like a preacher, teacher guy. I know you're supposed to make sweeping statements at times to keep my attention on the message, you know. But what that, was that one really true? And the answer to both those thoughts is yes. I am supposed to make sweeping statements in order to keep your attention with trickier passages like this. But that statement was absolutely true. Another sweeping statement. Okay. But right here, you're about to get the key to the whole Bible and, your whole, and, and to the key to your own heart. Because remember, remember what Paul is doing here in Galatians. He is <clears throat> writing this letter to a group of churches in the Roman state of Galatia. And he is contending for the gospel, for the central message of Christianity, which is this. That a person is made right with God, is made pleasing to God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Plus nothing. And the reason he's contending for that message is because in these churches, a group of high-powered, high-pressured, false teachers had come in and were going through and infiltrated them, and they were teaching Another gospel, which Paul's already said, is no gospel at all, which means it can't save you from anything. And the false gospel, the false message was this, that you and I become really pleasing to God by faith in Jesus plus becoming culturally Jewish by observing the dietary laws, focusing uh, on circumcision and keeping the Mosaic Covenant. And you see Paul here clearly point out how far culturally Jewish they were becoming here in verse 10. And this is what he says. He says, you, you're observing days and months and seasons and years. In verse 11 he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. All right, what's he talking about? There's some holidays and celebrations here. Well, the ones he was rebuking them for participating in weren't Christmas, Easter, 
your birthday, which modern-day Judaizers say that true Christians shouldn't celebrate. Maybe you've heard that. And the reason they say that is because they say, well, you know, if you knew the origins of the holiday, you wouldn't celebrate it. If you really knew the origins of Christmas, where it came from, you know, you wouldn't touch a Christmas cookie again. And But a couple of weeks ago, we actually saw that Paul over in 1 Corinthians 8, he dealt with the same thought in his day when Christians were coming to him and saying, Paul, there's food that the people in the church are eating. They've been sacrificed to idols. They're celebrating these festivals and eating food sacrificed to idols. They're eating Christmas cookies, Paul, and Easter eggs. And Paul says... What freedom in the gospel looks like is this. He says, because we know that an idol is nothing at all, meaning Zeus and Apollos and Ares don't exist, even if your birthday cookout hot dogs come stamped with approved by Zeus, eat them if you want. That's what freedom in the gospel looks like, which now brings you to ask, well, what's he talking about here? What kinds of celebrations is he, are he condemning? And the reason is, Remember, the answer, excuse me, the answer is, remember what the Judaizers were pushing. They were pushing a return to Jewish culture. And therefore, the days and the months and the seasons that they were celebrating were actually the Jewish holidays, the Jewish festivals, the Jewish cycles from the Old Testament. And so Paul here, he's saying, I am scared out of my mind for you. Because some of you are feeling pulled towards cultural Judaism and you're being told that to be really pleasing to God, you've got to observe the Passover and the Feast of Weeks and booze and trumpets. And you're not, you're being told that you're not really the true church unless you do these things. And Paul is saying here, stop it. Oh, stop it. Because now you're going back to something. You say, well, yeah, I know what they were going back to, Morgan. You know, you've already told me they were going back to cultural Judaism. Oh, but if you thought that, you would be wrong. Actually, completely wrong, in fact. They were going towards cultural Judaism, but hear this. They weren't going back to it. They weren't going back to it. How could they, right? Remember who these people are. They're not Jewish people, right? They're Greek, pagan, you know, now Roman citizens. These are Roman folk, uncircumcised, you know, pot smokers, uh, you know, gladiator cheering, you know, casual sex, having X-rated movie watching people, right? They were going towards cultural Judaism, but they weren't going back to it. They'd never been there in the first place. So then what in the world were they going back to? How could Paul say they were going back to something? Oh, And the answer to that question will give you the key to the Bible and the key to your own heart. Because Paul gives us the answer to that question. What were they going back to? He actually gives us the answer in the form of a question. He says this, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? That's sarcasm there at the end. This phrase here, though, elementary principles of the world, it's tough to translate. If you look at five different Bibles, they'll give you five different ways of putting that phrase. Because it's broader than this. Because literally, in the Greek, it's this phrase. You ready? Here it is. Stoichia tu cosmu. Stoichia tu cosmu. Or the stoichia of the cosmos. The stoichia of the universe. Stoichia means the ABCs. The basic thing. the, The thing everybody does or is doing. And so... Let's ask, what's he saying here is the basic thing that everybody's heart in the universe goes towards? 
according to the Bible. Well, Paul defines that in a clearer way in the first verse. He told us, he said, formerly, when you did not know God. Now, that's not just the Galatians. That's us. Formerly, when you today in your seat, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not gods or are non-gods. In other words, he's saying, when you didn't know God, before you knew him, your heart was doing the same basic, obvious, elementary thing everybody's heart does. It was becoming a slave to all kinds of non-gods. Now stop, wait, pause. You think, well, you know, Morgan, wait, weren't they really actually, you know, worshiping Zeus and Artemis and Hermes? Yes, but remember what Paul says, remember, Zeus, right? Zeus is a joke. He's like a cartoon character, man, somebody made up. He's a non-god, he's a fake, a phony. You weren't enslaved to Zeus, but notice what he does say. You weren't, you weren't enslaved to Zeus, but you were enslaved to something. What does he say? He calls them non-gods. What does that mean? Well, Paul is saying here, what the Bible says front to back, that people's hearts become enslaved, not to Zeus, but to what Zeus represents, power. See, not to Aphrodite alone, but to what the Aphrodite represented, represents sex and beauty and appearance. Not to Hermes, but to what Hermes represented, speed, efficiency, right? Not to Ares, but to what Ares represented, conquest, control. Paul is saying, the names mean nothing. But your hearts, Galatians, remember how they used to go after these things as a means of saving yourselves, feeling good and right and covered about yourselves. Remember how? Remember, Galatians, how you used to have sex out of your mind so you could say, I am the man, right? Remember how, Galatians, you used to get off on being in charge of people to compensate for your internal lack of character. And meaning, remember how your appearance, right, And your position and your grades and approval of others was all you could think about. And you slaved away for those things because you didn't know that Jesus loved you. Now, he says, you're doing that again. Only this time with religion. With religion. With church. You're doing it again. You're going back to the basic principle of the world. Being enslaved to an idol. Only this time, you're using religion to do it. And Paul says... It's killing you. It's killing you. See, look what he's saying. He's saying the basic default setting of the human heart is to take something, anything, elevate it to the status of an idol and worship it. See, you'll do anything for it. And this is the key to understanding what the whole Bible is about. Because it's true, hear me, for both non-Christians and Christians alike. And I want to look at both briefly. First, non-Christians. You know, the reason that anyone really doesn't serve God, doesn't want God, isn't just because there's not enough evidence. And thankfully, many honest atheists and skeptics are admitting that, have admitted that. Aldous Huxley, for example, he, he famously said, he's the famous skeptic and writer, he said, quote, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. He's saying the reason I don't believe there's any meaning or God is because I want to have sex with who I want to have sex with. I want to believe what I want to believe. Nietzsche famously said, it is not our arguments that decide against Christianity. It is our preferences. And finally, Thomas Nagel, a current atheist professor of philosophy at New York University, said this, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know our religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. 
It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. What are they saying? They're saying, you know that whole God thing? It's not really about the evidence. It's really about what our hearts want, which is that we control our own lives. No one tells us what to do. We want to live how we want to live. Now, that's their idol. And certainly this would not be what every skeptic would say, certainly on the surface. But enough brilliant ones have come out and admitted it over the years to see the thread that runs through it all. And it's actually what the Bible has said all along. (laughs) That it's not about the evidence. It's about what the heart wants. And this is where the Bible actually agrees with Frederick Nietzsche. And where Nietzsche and the Bible agree, you ought to poke your head up and listen, right? The basic principle of our hearts is that people go after all sorts of things, and they're almost always good things in themselves. See, knowledge is a good thing, right? Sex is a good thing. Uh, Authority and principle is a good thing. But our hearts weaponize these things against God. They enslave us in the process and then destroy our lives. That's the stoichia of the universe, the basic principle of the human heart. But it's not just a problem for non-Christians, because let's ask, after all, who is Paul writing to here? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Christians. Christians are the ones who are struggling with idolatry, and Christians always have. For example, look at the end of the book of 1 John, written by the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend. He's just written five chapters about living in love, living in the light, loving God, loving your neighbor. And the last thing the great apostle of love says at the end of his letter is this. Remember the last thing he wrote? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Goodbye. (laughs) Just drops the mic, right? Now, He's either gone off his rocker here, right? Forgotten he's speaking to Christians. You're thinking, I don't have a problem with idolatry. I'm a Christian. No, who's John speaking to, right? Or maybe you think the old man here, he's forgotten what he's writing and he's randomly introducing some concept he's senile. Or maybe, just maybe, John knows something about your own heart that maybe you don't know. That the temptation of every heart, even the Christian's heart, is to go back to something. Every Christian's heart is tempted to go back to something, to get peace, right? To get emotional security and use that thing as its heart's, the heart's savior, see, besides Jesus. And now I've got good news and bad news about that statement. Here's the bad news first. The bad news is this passage shows us that if it could happen to the Galatians, it could happen to you and me. As a matter of fact, it's probably happening to you right now. But here's the good news. This passage also shows us, thankfully, a surprising, amazing way out. But I'm not going to tell you what it is just yet. I'm going to leave you hanging a bit. Because I want to put not just you, but put someone else under the microscope this morning. Have someone else squirm a bit. And it's the other person that this passage puts under the microscope for us. That's me. Myself. In other words, pastors, ministers, spiritual leaders of churches are also those who must examine their own hearts and who many times also need a breakthrough. And before we see the breakthrough that Paul gives, we also need to see what he's laying out for us here because he's about to show us, show all of us, how pastors, how spiritual leaders need to lead in the church and how, thankfully, we can have the kind of church culture here together that can help break people's hearts out of enslavement. 
All right, fair enough. So we'll push pause in the breakthrough. We'll get to that. But let's see here next what he shows us in the passage. Not just all kinds of non-gods, but there's also three kinds of churches. Three kinds of churches. All right, so Paul, here he is. He's going on in the passage. He's about to give us not just the key to spiritual freedom, but also the key to a spiritual blueprint of how spiritual leaders ought to act and function. And just as a little disclaimer here as I go on, let me just say, this actually makes me feel a bit uncomfortable because this may cause you to think I'm being critical of other churches or other leaders, other ministers, and as, but I'm not. As we go along, you may be tempted to think, oh, there's someone he's speaking about directly. Let me just say this. There is no person, no church I'm referring to, although as we go along, we might as well face facts here. There's going to be just churches, probably lots of them, and leaders that probably won't hit the mark here. And maybe you'll think that's me and us as a church. Well, I'll leave that to you. Okay. All right. Disclaimer over. And let's just move on to the content and just look at the next verse. Verse 11, Paul says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. My little children, he goes on in verse 19, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, here, to help us see the kind of church that we want to be, the three kinds of churches, Paul actually gives us three marks that authentic, real pastors and ministers ought to have. And really what you're about to see are qualities of soul and life that anyone ought to possess before you entrust your heart and you entrust your life to them. Now, those are strong words. We're going to look at them in turn and see why. Let's just ask. What are the marks of authentic spiritual leadership? Well, first, we'll put it like this. There's A, loving labor. Loving labor. Paul says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And he's not just talking about his job here. He doesn't mean his work or his vocation because later on in verse 19, he talks about being in the anguish of what? Childbirth until the people break out, break break through and free in this area. Now, Let's just admit it. This is kind of strange language for a single guy to be using, talking about childbirth, talking about being a mama. What's he saying? He's saying that to be in ministry is to give your heart away. Look at the metaphor he's using. Motherhood, right? Parenthood. And for those of you who have children, some of you already identified yourself, you know you are only as happy as what? the most unhappy child in your home, right? You know, on the emotional level of the kid who's making A's and hitting home runs, you're on the level of the fussy kid who's emotionally dominating the house, who screams at everything, who won't do his chores. Oh, wait, maybe that's just my life in my home. Okay. Listen, you, you know what I mean, and really, you know what Paul means here. To be an effective authentic pastor, minister, leader, is to really, is to be in anguish over people's lives and souls. And here's the thing, I wish it weren't this way. I hate this part. I do. Because here's the thing, your life, your life, your behavior, your choices, they affect my life. And they ought to, in a sense. They affect my wife's life. What you do, what you say, it affects us. It just does. And Paul shows us here that true spiritual leadership requires an anguish of soul and, secondarily, hard work. Let me ask you, 
Do you have someone like this in your life? Someone whose heart breaks when you fail and someone whose heart leaps when you break through. See, you need that. You need that. And I'll go even one step further. Where do you think Paul got this metaphor of childbirth from? It was from Jesus himself who compared himself to a mother weeping over her children, which means this. If there is no one here in this church for whom you are laboring, if there's no one here over whom your soul is in anguish and no one whose breakthrough you have to celebrate, you're not really leading in the church, nor do you really know the heart of Jesus for people. Because if you did, you'd feel and talk like Paul feels and talks here. All right, told you I was going to put myself under the microscope. All right, number two, let's move on here. Flexible faith, not just loving labor, but what we'll call flexible faith. And Paul says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And the second mark here that Paul shows us is that true spiritual leaders are flexible about just about everything except the gospel. He says, I became like you. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Paul was beginning to slide back towards cultural Judaism. Otherwise, he couldn't have called them out on it. No, he's rigid about the gospel. But what this means is this. When it came to reaching people for Jesus, Paul didn't get hung up on majoring in the minors, so to speak. My friend Kevin York, who was here just a few weeks ago, you may have heard him. He sees church done all over the world. He kind of chuckles. Now, hold your horses here. He kind of chuckles when he hears people complain about women in leadership positions in churches. I asked him why he laughs about that, and he says this. He said, go to China. He said, go to China, where all the male leaders are in prison. If you're a male leader in the church in China, if you're a Christian leader there long enough, you will go to jail for the gospel. He says, well, what are the churches supposed to do? Not be organized, right? Not have teaching, not have leadership? He said, no, it's the women that are changing China, not the men. Now, of course, the men are too. They have an enormous courage by suffering heroically in prison. But he says, listen, it's just the women who are leading there. Now, he says, do you want to get hung up on that? Or do you want the gospel to advance? See? See, you get the point. Paul says, when I was with you, I was rigid about where I needed to be rigid. I was flexible about other things. The minors are important. They're all important. If it's in the Bible, it's important. But Paul's saying, I didn't let the minors overpower the majors. Listen, do you want to be in leadership in this church? A small group leader, deacon, elder? Good on you, you know. We're just going to be flexible about the doctrines that are clearly minor and rigid and enduring about the ones that are clearly not. And it also means, as a church member, you can be flexible about changes in the church, about stuff that's really minor. Let me ask you, has the gospel in this church changed? No. No. Have our core values changed? No. Well, then good. You're good. (laughs) What's unchanging will stay unchanging. What can't be changed might be changed, you know, the name, for example. Paul says, I can flex when I need to, right? How about you? Number three, final mark here, what we'll call transparent toughness. Now, let's look at the first part. This is the most challenging. He says, now become like me. (laughs) Paul is saying this, you need to grow up (laughs) and become like me more and more. Now, listen, that's gutsy. That's gutsy to say. Here's what he means. He means that in the church, a leader's life just has to be worth emulating. 
what he means. If you want to be in leadership in this church, your life's got to be worth emulating, period. Now, on one hand, there ought to be a higher standard from an elder in the church, lead pastor, and for a community group leader, and that ought to be kind of obvious to you. But on the other hand, if you're in any kind of position of leadership, and that goes all the way out to all of our volunteer team members, let me ask you, do you have the kind of life and faith and attitude that someone else would want to emulate. Can you say with integrity to someone else, become like me? Oh, imitate my faith. Now let me just stir the pot for a minute and suggest that it ought to be one of your top, if not your top spiritual goal right after just honoring God with your life. See, Become a person other people can look up to. Become a leader that can say to people around you, get off your spiritual assets And get to praying. Get to serving. Sharing the gospel. Go to work on time, you know. Pray with your wife, dude. Minister to your kids. If we're crying out loud, mow your lawn. You know, your neighbors can't take it anymore. Let's just pull back and acknowledge the obvious here. Three kinds of churches, it suggests. One kind of church particularly liberal ones, that have no problem saying, we've become like you, we're all just like you, we're all just broken, weak people, we don't judge anyone else. And a lot of churches can get that part. But in the end, it does no good by itself because it really disempowers justice, really does, and accountability of leadership. But a second kind of church, on the other hand, can get the second part right. They can get the message of, become like me. In other words, the message is, I'm awesome, and you're not, right? Become like me, the superhero on the stage. What's wrong with all you weak people, right? Listen, that kind of culture never helps anybody in the end. All it does is create a shame-based, performance-oriented culture where people hide their sin and never get healed. And it ultimately will self-destruct because people's stuff, it always comes out in the end. But fewer churches still can put both of these things together and say, become like me, for I became like you. Fewer churches can say, and I hope we can be one of them, no, we're not perfect. We're not perfect. And we're close enough to you and involved enough in your life where you can see that. But we've also got enough of the goods to call you up into something beyond where you are now so that you can grow. So, now... Before we move on, let's just put all three of these qualities together in one church culture. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if you had people in your life who, A, labored for you, who didn't get hung up on the minors in your life, and who had enough spiritual firepower to light a fire under you? What might you become? Hmm. And in my opinion, there are many people in this church like that. And if you don't have someone like that, maybe it's because you're not as deeply involved here as you could be, should be, ought to be, see. Let me ask you, do you have a Paul who can say something like that to you, right? And not only say that to you, but do you have someone who can lead you on to having a spiritual breakthrough in your soul with this final thought? And this final thought is the key, finally, that Paul gives us to not just breaking through in life, but also in leadership. Let's look at it, finally, the one way to break through. 
that Paul was about to give them and us the key to breaking our hearts free this morning from whatever basic, worthless thing we may be trying to go back to that lies to our heart. And it's this thought right here, back at the beginning of the passage. He says, but now, it's amazing, he says, now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again? Did you catch that? Oh, he's saying that above all else, there's one thing that can keep your soul clean and right before God. He's saying this. I'll rephrase it for you. He's saying that what matters more than even knowing God is knowing that God knows you. I'll say it again. What matters more than you knowing God is knowing that God knows you. Now, sometimes, personally, when I feel my soul sliding back towards something, I'll speak to it, which, by the way, is not just crazy talk. It's an entirely biblical thing to do, you know, Psalm 103. uh, And it'll go something like this. Morgan, Morgan's soul, you have been brought from death to life by a Savior who loves you and is for you, has given your life to yours. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope. Yet in God there is a real God, a real God, not a fake non-God, who has lost his life and lost his family and lost his own son. Rather than lose you, remember that, my soul. You don't need the non-God, the fake God of approval or successor being seen anymore. And that's really good, I hope. Some of you are saying amen, yeah. And that works, whoa, whoa, that works on some stuff. But there are just times and seasons where you just feel like giving up. Like feel like you're going to give in and give up on the promises God has made to you because you just want relief from whatever pressure you may feel. Some of you may be just going back to porn, to lust, or affair, or drugs, just One more glass, you know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's bitterness or despair, but Paul says there's something even greater than knowing God that can break you out. It's having the awareness and the experience of the reality that God knows you. When I was 21 years old, 18 years ago last month, I was finishing up my last season as a college baseball player, the reality had set in that I wasn't going to be continuing on with a professional career. My inability, you know, to hit the curveball had sort of seen to that, but it was really hitting me hard in the moment. Uh, The day was a Saturday. It was the last home game of the year. My parents were in the stands, and I remember feeling like a failure, like all my dreams and hard work were coming to nothing. I finished all uh, all the pregame stuff. I went to sit down on the top step of the dugout, Cougar Field, the University of Houston, the previous years flashing before my eyes, and in a moment, sun shining, flags waving, people in the stands. God, the Holy Spirit, came to me and said this. He said, Morgan, I've seen you. I've seen you out here every day sharing your faith with your teammates. I've seen how hard you worked for me. Saw every time you were persecuted by your teammates for honoring me. I am so proud of you. You could go on and play baseball. That's what he said. But I have made you for the ministry. And right there behind my Oakley sunglasses with 25 other dudes, you know, began to cry. Tears streamed down my face. My chest began to heave, put my head down so people can't see what's going on. But I came out of the moment feeling 10 tons lighter. See, my heart that had was trying to go back to the basic thing of this world, wanting to have a career and the success I wanted by being enslaved by a dream for my life that wasn't God's. I've been free by that one thing, knowing that God knows me. God sees me. See, what matters more than even knowing God is knowing that God knows you. That's what Paul is saying. Do you know that? 
Do you know that? See, some of you are struggling today in your marriage. God sees you. Some of you are struggling with an illness or a loved one who is ill. God sees it. Don't give up. You say, well, why isn't he doing something about it? Listen, I don't know what he's doing about it. But I do know what he's doing through it. Remember Paul said earlier in the passage, it was because of an illness of a disease, of a sickness, of a bad circumstance that I preach the gospel to you. In other words, he's saying, it's because I got sick that you got saved. See, Paul saw all of his circumstances, even the unexpected ones, through that lens, the lens of God sees me and he knows me. Oh, this thing is powerful. It's the key to your breakthrough, and it's the key to becoming the kind of church we want to be. One that labors lovingly for souls. One that can flex where we need to, but stand firm where we must. And one full of people who can live transparently before one another, but who have the goods to look one another in the eye and call each other up to spiritual greatness. See, not just that we know God. He knows us. He sees you in your circumstance. I hope you can say amen. Let's go to him now in prayer and in faith, believing for that.